Hello and welcome to Chilenial Horrors, the horror podcast where we face our fears and revisit the movies that we really used to absolutely love back when we were young and carefree. And now we find out whether they're actually any good or if we're just too full of the joys of youth to make a proper critical judgment. On this episode, we're looking back at the noughties movies of British filmmaker Neil Marshall, Dog Soldiers, The Descent and Doomsday. Now before we get into it, Sarah, what are your general thoughts on Neil Marshall and Neil Marshall movies? I was thinking about this. I feel like I generally think that Neil Marshall... Well, when I think of Neil Marshall, I think of The Descent. And I think, oh, that's a masterpiece. And then I just don't think about anything else. (laughs) I go about my way. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I think... Oddly, I don't. I feel like I don't have as much of an opinion on him as a personality as I maybe do with the rest of the Splatpack. Like... I've met him at Fright Fest once. Seemed alright. <laughs> That's about as much as I know. How about you? Yeah, I think he was he was someone that I really loved when I'm trying to think of how old I would have been, two thousand and two. Like fifteen. Fifteen, like through to uni, I think I was a huge Neil Marshall fan. Like I, I remember Dog Soldiers came out and I absolutely loved it and then the descent was great. And I even yeah, really we'll get into it later, but Doomsday at the time I really loved as well. Like not as much as the other two, but yeah, he was someone that I really admired and loved the work of and yeah I think I kind of wanted him to keep doing well after Doomsday and I followed his kind of well he only made one more movie after that and then disappeared into TV I think he's someone that I've kind of been rooting for to come back and keep making movies uh, so I've always like felt genuinely you know up until the last couple of years and it's not changed drastically but obviously there's been some mitigating circumstances in terms of his work and some bizarre personal circumstances but yeah, someone that I felt positively towards and rooted for and felt like maybe had a bit of a kind of hard deal in terms of some of the other people. But also, I think I agree, like, he doesn't seem to have that... There's not an immediate personality there as there is with someone like an Eli Roth or a Rob Zombie. He doesn't sort of, you know, there's no silhouette. Yeah, or maybe he's just not... Um, not as online. As outspoken, I guess. Like, he's not out there, like, yelling about what he thinks about the state of horror. Or maybe he is, and I just haven't heard it. But, like, it feels like Eli, Eli Roth was almost, like, quite strident about what he thought about things and, and really kind of... Well, we talked about this on the episode, but really kind of pushed himself as mm, a personality definitely. in a way that I don't really feel... I mean, I feel like Eli Roth is the opposite end of the spectrum, really. Like, he's really done that. Whereas I feel like Neil Marshall, not at all, really. And then, like, James Wan and Lee Wan L will be, like, sort of somewhere in the yeah, middle. Yeah, I guess... I do wonder if it's partly he kind of came a bit before Edgar Wright and then Edgar Wright happened and then British mm. genre filmmaking was Edgar Wright for, like, in terms of kind of what the personality was and like the, the director that everyone followed. And I think it may be if Neil Marshall's third film had been as good as his first two, then there would be like, there would be more Neil Marshall discussion. But it's sort of like fan-friendly, horror, horror-loving genre movies. Edgar Wright sort of slipped past him and then and then then fits much more neatly into sort of the Eli Roth and sort of Quentin Tarantino fan discussion and kind of love yeah I imagine I feel like and I say this with some affection but I imagine that'd be a very loud room if you're in it with those three (laughs) kind of out referencing each other (laughs) definitely okay so dog soldiers wait did it have a theatrical release in the UK? It did. I remember this purely because I was trying to find a, somewhere I could go and see it. And the only screening I could find was like about half 11 at night at one of those, you know, out of town kind of shopping centres that there was no mm. way I could hope to get to on my under my own steam. And there was no one that was going to convince to take me to an out-of-town shopping centre at half eleven at night. So I did not Gutted. see it at the cinema. Uh, no, I didn't either. Which, you know, I nearly confidently went in with, I didn't see it at the cinema, and then I doubted myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, I can tell for sure that I have only ever seen this film before on a very small screen because it just looked really different this time. Um, and there were moments in this in the film where I was like, I know that I've only seen this on a screen that was kind of too small or too dark to really make out what was going on. And and I'm watching it now. I'm like, oh, that's really obvious. But that, I think, I think, I feel like we had a conversation about that, like way back on the Haunted House episode or something, like just the difference it's made between having a sort of 20 something inch TV to a 50 something. It's really made a big difference to the home viewing experience. It was Ring, wasn't it? And actually noticing that Sarah Coe pops up way (laughs) earlier than we thought she did. Yes. Just, oh, I just couldn't see that before on my tiny TV. 
<laughs> Kids today don't know they're born. Um, there's Sadako everywhere. <laughs> but yeah, I think Dog Soldiers, I feel like I'd always felt reasonably positive towards it, but not... I just sort of like, yeah, you know, it's all right. I didn't love it. I, I think the thing that I really like noticed this time, so sort of spoilers, but it's in the first third of the film. A character... Um, how do I say this in a not, not unpleasant way? He basically has his intestines ripped out, his his guts come out. Um, I think they actually say, like, oh, my guts are out. Okay. Right. <laughs> um, and then there's a scene later where he's bandaged up and a dog grabs hold of the end of the bandage and is like pulling and like trying to run away with it. And I swear to God, the first time I saw this film, it was on a small enough screen that... I, I thought the dog was pulling his intestines. I don't know whether this was like a very sort of Chuck Palahniuk influenced time. <laughs> I was just super aware of guts everywhere. But like, I feel like I've always remembered that scene as the dog like pulling his guts out and then watching it now. I'm like, no, that's really obviously a bandage. It's white. <laughs> they do look like guts, definitely. Yeah. I, I thought it was the first time I watched it as well. Um, yeah. I think it's also because like, that's such a terrifying image that... It, you, you kind of can't look at it, so you you you. It's one of those things where you imagine it being worse than it is because you're not looking at it. Yeah, definitely. I guess yeah, we should probably yeah. The plot of Dog Soldiers, if you've not seen Dog Soldiers, uh, it's a group of British squaddies who are sent on a training exercise in the Scottish Highlands, and they think they're there to get yeah, to have a training exercise with a group of special forces soldiers. What they don't realise is that they're supposed to be the bait in a trap set by the special forces soldiers for a family of local werewolves. Or they think it's only one werewolf, but it's actually a family of local werewolves. Unfortunately for Special Forces guys, they all get hit first, and it's up to the squaddies with the kind of the, all the weaponry left over by, by all this mess of, of that's left over of people. And one very sinister Special Forces man, played by Liam Cunningham, who had gone to be in Game of Thrones and whatnot, uh, to survive the night in a farmhouse, helped by... Uh, She's like a local. She's like a scientist and animal expert. Mm-hmm. Unclear as kind of exactly what her field of study is. Basically, she knows exactly what they are. She knows that they're werewolves, and she's going to try and convince them that they are actually werewolves. Um, called Megan, played by Emma Cleesby. But yeah, for most of it, it's it's really really simple. Like the mm-hmm. you kind of introduce this group of about six or seven people, and yeah, it's a lot of banter. Basically, there's kind of constantly bickering with each other. So much banter. So much banter. <laughs> Uh, and then like the fighting starts about 15 minutes in and like, I've got to run to the farmhouse and once they're there it's got a, it's basically a siege situation and it's kind of like a, about three or four kind of successive big action set pieces as they kind of get picked off one by one after that point but it's, yeah a lot of shooting a lot of quipping loads of gore and I just remember like having especially I guess, yeah I was 15 when this came out and I just <laughs> loved it to pieces it was so much fun and yeah, so my, my first memories of watching it are sort of watching it on a TV screen with a bunch of friends, uh, kind of repeatedly, just watch it over and over yeah. again. <laughs> oh, that's really nice. <laughs> I'm, I think I must have watched it like with some uni friends on our tiny telly in our flat. And yeah, I, I like. I think the banter and the sort of laddiness of it put me off a bit. Like it's very like, well, yeah, they're squaddy. So there is that, that constant um, banter about things. And and uh, I don't know. It just it was very, it's very very masculine. And then we have Megan, who is awesome and who I appreciated much more this time. Megan's <laughs> a lot of fun. Yeah. There's 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 an amazing um, bit of play on words with one character who's been complaining about bitches the whole time. <laughs> very much gets his just desserts. <laughs> there's a lot of kind of talk about. I'd forgotten quite how much the main character is Cooper, played by Kevin McKidd, who is obviously far more qualified than kind of his position lets on. He's a corporal and Sarge is played by Sean Pertwee. He's in charge of the group. But he's like the sensible one kind of man of action who will kind of get shit done. Um, but he does talk a lot about how he's scared of women. <laughs> most of it, it's like, it has a scene where everyone talks about what they're scared of and he's going spiders and women and spider women. <laughs> but then, yeah, I think like a massive spoilers for the Megan character. But uh, yeah, her reveal, just I think knowing that that's coming makes her so much more fun. And the way she, she plays it really well, <laughs> speed. there's so many little glances and stuff where she's like sizing them up. I love everything about how they handled that though. Yeah, there's there's so many little bits. Um, but I don't feel like it's so blindingly obvious because there's so much else going on. Like you're constantly being distracted by, like you say, these big action pieces and, and, and the werewolves are like, yeah, sticking their hands around the door. And <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's like lots of fun. So I think 
you can kind of forget to think too much about what she's saying. And then, yeah, how Cooper just kind of is like, oh, yeah, I've, I've twigged what's happening here. <laughs> it's not like, yeah, yeah, he's just like, oh, right, yeah. Uh, what does he say? He says something like, oh, there, there is no house in the next Glen or something. Is yeah. his, his kind of, oh, I figured you out. You're not a neighbour. You are actually yeah. one of the The werewolves. reason you're not in the picture is because you took it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess because, like, and Liam Cunningham is Ryan, the uh, special forces guy who Cooper has previous history with and is grievously wounded when they meet him and kind of obviously gets a lot better because he's been bitten by a werewolf. But he's just just sitting in the corner snarling at them the whole movie so he's such a distracting villain character because you're just yeah. waiting for him to to turn into a werewolf which he does and that scene is a lot of fun but um <laughs> everyone i think what i do really appreciate about it as well is that the performances are all really good like yeah yeah everyone just kind of goes for it no one seems kind of above it like kevin mckid yeah. like really commits and sean pert he's just having the best fucking time <laughs> um Darren Morfitt's Spoon is obviously the big scene stealer. Um, but he's great fun. I think there's not there's not a bad performance in it. Yeah, there's not a bad performance. There are some very bad moments of dialogue, I will say. <laughs> oh, I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the There is no Spoon line. I was like, you've just lost all, all five stars. <laughs> you are on zero right now. <laughs> You better show me some werewolves again quickly, otherwise. <laughs> um, I really hated that, and I really hate the final line. And yeah, just I think what feels different now from when I watched it the first time was when I watched it the first time, I felt like I was, you know, like a kid watching a film made by a grown up. Uh, and now I felt like I was a grown up watching a film by a kid. Like I felt like I was like, oh, that's cute. You did that. <laughs> yeah, I, def- I know what you mean. I think. I think I'm more kind of impressed by the energy of it and the ambition mm. this time. I was more like, holy shit, like he did this, this is like his first movie. Like there's obviously a bit, like it's a bit wobbly and creaky in places and you can kind of tell some of the budget limitations, but mm. you're kind of, I think no, watching it now, kind of noticing how well he hides it rather than, I, I, yeah. I, I don't think I'd even noticed it before as a teenager, but now I'm sort of more, okay, well, yeah, just showing lots of hands of werewolves and kind of, yeah things bursting through windows rather than actually you know, trying to avoid showing you the whole thing and that's um, scarier though sometimes yeah you know we, we i'm sure we've talked about it before like yeah sometimes when they just show you the whole monster you're like oh is that it or is it yeah just some claws kind of like reaching around to get you that's that's creepy that's what you want i think yeah the, the thing about yeah it does have that great energy but yes the thing for me that i really that just stuck out was just the contrivances to make references work so yeah in order to get the line of dialogue that there is no spoon it was just yeah no like that's not and you know you you just wanted to be a bit nerdy which is fine but like oh but yeah i think yeah that's why it just feels so young now i guess just it's everything it's that like kind of hero worship of other films and just kind of this excitement to to tell this story and then yeah, and maybe the like sort of slightly shunky writing is just a result of being quite young and being your first film. It's like because there is no spoon line comes straight after the the amazing fight sequence between Spoon and a werewolf, where he kills, he stabs a werewolf, he pun- has like a punch up with a werewolf, stabs it with a, like a bread knife, I think, and then is beating it to death with like a saucepan, and it's it's at that point of the movie you're not questioning that this character could do that, that he could kill a werewolf with his bare hands, pretty much. And it does, yeah, it does kind of reduce that to like a joke because he gets the he gets the line. I hope you get, I hope I give you the shits, you fucking wimp. Which I really love that. <laughs> which line. is great, yeah. yeah. And then it is completely deflated by the there is no spoon. It was horrible. Like just take um, it out. Someone just do a <laughs> director's cut without that line. <laughs> it's kind of it's more frustrating as well because I think one of the things I really like about Neil Marshall movies is. Sometimes they do feel really naturalistic, like the bits where they're trying to, like, basically, the world's trying to get in, the, get their hands through the, the letterbox and stuff, and he's like hammering it with a hammer, so I'm like, fuck off, fuck off. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They're like, get out of it, fuck off. And th- that always feels really relatable, and it's just sort of just panic, but not yeah. sort of like a cool line just to kind of get the fuck out of it. And then, so then those movie references do feel. There's a couple in there that feel... I'm trying to remember them now. There's a couple in there that feel okay. But yeah, there's a Brisky Point one was a reference that I, I, when I was a kid, I still haven't seen the film. 
uh, like I know it's a reference, but I don't really know why it's in there. I think, I mean, I guess maybe the, the There Is No Spoon one stands out so much because it doesn't work. Like, as we'll get into later, he's always putting references to things in. Um, and sometimes they work in context without either having to know that it's a reference or what it's a reference to. Um, but yeah, that it's just, it's such an awkward construction. It's just no one would ever say that in that situation. No. <laughs> No, you really wouldn't. It's not, you wouldn't make a joke. You wouldn't, yeah, no, I hate it. I hate it. It makes my skin crawl. Everything else is, is reason. I mean, like you say about the budget restraints, you can really see it. So my husband walked in while I was rewatching it and was like, are you watching EastEnders? <laughs> I was like, that's harsh. Can kind of see what you mean. <laughs> it has a little bit, like, it, it looks a little bit shot for TV. Not, I mean... I think given what he was working with, it's, it's pretty impressive. But there are moments where you're like, yeah, this, this looks cheap as chips. Yeah. I think once you get to the farmhouse, especially, like, it's just, okay, we're here now. This is what this is where everything will happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I think, like, it does really make you care about a lot of the characters. I think even though some of them are kind of assholes, I think what's interesting about the bad dialogue in places is that he does write kind of a group of people really convincingly, mm. I think. Mm-hmm. Even even though they, though they feel heightened, like they do feel like normal people and like look kind of like relatable characters who have this bond with each other. I think that kind of carries through at least to his next film anyway. But yeah, I don't know. Like, unlike Cabin Fever like, and some of the other Splatpack movies, I do go back to Dog Soldiers quite a lot because it's just, I still find it really fun. Mm. And I don't know partly whether it's just because I have watched it several times in the years in between, but that ha- I haven't really felt kind of like a, a lessening quality for me. I think the ambition of it and um, like it's just fun like it's it's funny it's the action's great the gore is like oh like we mentioned the guts but there's so much <laughs> just kind of like blood everywhere and really satisfying yeah. kind of chopping bits off werewolves and <laughs> yeah definitely because I think I would have said that Neil Marshall kind of sticks out amongst the splat pack in like he doesn't really feel like he belongs there he kind of feels like he just got shoehorned in because he was making films around the same time but like it didn't to me, before I rewatched them, it didn't really feel like he fitted in that categorization. And then now, having watched this, I'm like, no, it totally fits. It's the same thing of like young filmmakers who are grow, you know, have grown up on this diet of horror films and are doing their own thing, but paying homage to that and just being really fucking splattery. <laughs> and and I guess a reaction to yeah, the time and the fairly boring direction horror had taken, and it is just this sort of like loud kind of aggressive kickback. Yeah, I actually think my, I liked it more this time than I thought I did in my head. I know I sound like I'm being critical, but like, yeah, I, I never had that much affection for it. I was always like, yeah, it's all right, I guess. I wouldn't choose to watch it. And then I watched it. It was like, actually, yeah, I can see how this is good in lots of ways. It's just, I just need to like leave the room when he says there is no spoon. <laughs> that'll be fine. <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting w- with this as well, like knowing where his career went and... Like, the action is, um, is really impressive for the resources they had. And, like, Dog Soldiers feels like it's pulling inspiration from a lot of kind of sci-fi horror action movies of, of like, the 80s and 70s rather than necessarily... I mean, there's definitely a lot of Evil Dead in it. Mm. But it feels like the action and kind of buddy stuff is where his heart is, I think, more than maybe I noticed yeah. when I first watched it. When I first watched it, I was like, oh, it's a horror movie. And then now knowing that he's more of... He does love action a bit more than horror... And like thrillers, and so mm. like, oh yeah, like you can kind of see like the horrors kind of maybe second or third down on the list of things that it is. Mm. Yeah, I think maybe it's just that I I just really love those werewolves. I know there's been like a lot of criticism of them. Like I I can't remember who it was, but I'm sure there was someone said, oh, they just said like ballet dancers. But like I think I they look awesome. Them, I really yeah, like them. <laughs> I always really love werewolves. And they're like wolves, they're my favourite. Yeah, and they're great. They're great shaggy sort of things. Just like giant things with big claws. And they're really scary. And and it doesn't have like it doesn't have its sort of American werewolf style big transformation moment, but you do get some bits of people sort of wolfing out a little bit, and that's fun. There's lots of like glowing eyes and yeah, things. Yeah, there's a lot of popping up from under the table with slightly different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like Liam Cunningham hissing's great. Yeah, and, like Sean Pertwee just doing his kind of wolfing out a bit. Oh, and there is I do really love the discussion of turning into whether turning into a werewolf is like needing a piss or needing a shit. When you gotta go, you gotta go. Or maybe because you need one, just because you need one doesn't mean you drop your kegs and pitch one off. Yes. Um, <laughs> it's just I don't know. It does. Yeah, that youth, that energy. I think that kind of yeah. Maybe it is like a first film thing, but like it feels really sincere. I think the 
the banter doesn't sound like someone trying to be funny. It sounds like someone who like likes having these conversations. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does. It feels sort of authentic. Yeah. And like also there are, there are there are accents that aren't sort of usual kind of English movie accents or British movie accents. I've not mm. quite noticed that more. That's true. I, think I was just having a look at what other British movies were out in 2002 and 28 mm. Days Later obviously comes on and changes the zombie movie, but it is pretty mm. grim. There's like Long Time Dead and Death Watch. I don't... Neither of those even ring a bell, I don't think. There was a weird trend for British military horror that was... Uh, oh. The Bunker was 2001, which was about a German bunker. With, I think it was a common British director made it, but it was a British film. And then Death Watch was made by MJ Bassett and had Jamie Bell in it. It's about a trench. Um, also, Andy, Andy Circus gets killed by possessed barbed wire. Amazing. <laughs> and then, yeah, then Dog Soldiers, which I think uh, is probably the best of a bad bunch. Yeah. It stands out. Like, it's, it's more compared to, like, Ginger Snaps or something like that. Mm. It doesn't feel... It feels like a very British film, but also feels quite unique in kind of British genre movies at that point anyway yeah and then and then I think like what was interesting was watching The Descent like straight after Dog Soldiers and going this is very like they're very similar it's kind of like the same film but like with some obvious cosmetic changes but that that actually changed a lot but even in terms of kind of like the story beat so you've got a group of people who are going out into like the wild (laughs) going into a forest and then like there's even the same sort of moment where in dog soldiers they is it like a dead cow drops into their like when they're sitting around the campfire and then like in um in the descent they find i don't even know if it's what it is in that some kind of dead animal and like you know that's kind of a very horror movie trope but it's like this kind of like omen oh there's something out here that's ripping up animals like we should have taken heed of that and left. But yeah, so you have a, you have a, an established group of people who go out to the middle of nowhere and find themselves at the mercy of monsters and sort of trapped in one enclosed location while they're picked off one by one. Like, in that very basic way, I think that, that they kind of work in the same way. Yeah, definitely. Even down to sort of the main, char- the de- main character in The Descent, Sarah, is kind of returning to the group after something that's kept her away. In the same way that Cooper's been kind of, oh, like, this is where I belong. I've tried to go for Special Forces, didn't work out. Sarah's obviously a very different situation, yeah. but she's kind of returning and everyone's kind of a bit, like, trying to make her feel like one of the group again. Yeah. So, to go full... Oh, I was going to say spoilers, but it, it's, it's the start of the film. Um, so, they're a group of women who kind of do very outdoorsy, adventure style activities together. So, they start off um, whitewater rafting, I think. And you see them all together and how they work and little kind of tensions within the group. And then as they're leaving their adventure, uh, Sarah's husband, I can't remember if he crashes into something or they crash into him, but whatever happened, like basically he he and her daughter are killed in a really horrible accident that's kind of final destination with the poles going through the car and yeah. So she is deeply traumatised by the time she comes back, I think one year later or something, and, and goes on holiday with the girls again. And they're all heading off to go potholing. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love as a word, because it sounds like you're just going to go and like, I don't know, look at some very small holes. But um, but no, they're going into some caves, some what they think is a well-mapped out, um, established set of caves that there's a guide to and you can find your way in and out and it's all very normal. But it turns out that Juno, one of the group, has a different adventure in mind and has found a completely unexplored cave system that she wants them to claim for themselves. Turns out to be a very bad idea, doesn't it? Because, like, I mean, it's like, I think... What's really lovely about The Descent is that it is so frightening before the monsters ever show up. It's so, 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 so tense. Um, Just the idea of being in a cave is scary to me anyway. (laughs) You're just in a cave. You're in the middle of nowhere. You have, like, no one knows you're there. And then you find you sort of realize that like you don't know if they're where the exit is or if there even is an exit. Like you could just be in this place where you can't get out. And then, like, people... And then things start moving. And then, like, people start getting trapped in little holes. And, like, there are so many stories that kind of go around the internet of um, people who go into these caves and then find themselves trapped and then just sort of starve to death, stuck in a hole. And it's, like, the weirdest, scariest sport imaginable. Yeah. 
makes no sense to me at all. No. So to turn that into a horror movie is 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 brilliant. Like it's it feels like it's almost yeah ready made for you. Once they kind of realise that they have to keep moving and that things are going to start falling down behind them. Yeah, yeah. That just gets me. I think because a couple of bits at the start where it's like, oh, this maybe I get it. And you get to kind of like <laughs> rappel down into this kind of cavern and like little bits, little bits of tight squeeze. But also, yeah, I'm I'm not built for caving. Like not even a little no. bit. <laughs> <laughs> Not even slightly. Um, and I'm claustrophobic, so... Yeah, I, I, I might be. I haven't tried, I, I haven't oh tried to God. put myself in a situation where... Oh. I mean, like, yeah, even when they... Right at the beginning, when they start crawling through small holes that are sort of, like, uh, big enough to sort of for them to comfortably crawl through, even then I'm already on edge because I'm like, I don't like this. I don't like spaces where I can't stand up. And, yeah, no, yeah, not for me. Yeah, having to go forward, not being able to turn around, that's my, like... I couldn't go back if I wanted to kind of thing. Yeah, that freaks me out. And he does that so well. There's that sequence where it's after they've um, realised that Juno has... I think think it's after they realise that Juno has sent them the wrong way, like sent them into a completely different cave system that's not Borum Caverns. Um, And uh, Sarah gets stuck halfway down a thing and her friend Beth has to go get her. And it's such a great, like... She looks stuck. She looks convincingly stuck and she plays it so well, Sean McDonald. And it's such a horror, like, that's one of the scariest sequences in the movie for me is when she's just trying to, like, talk her down from a panic attack. Oh, fucking hell. It's terrifying. It's so terrifying because, yeah, like, at first Beth thinks she's just kind of stuck because she's panicking. Um, And it's a difficult manoeuvre. So it's, you know, you have to be calm in order to figure out where you're putting your feet and stuff, I guess. And so she's like trying to make her laugh and tells her a joke and, and kind of, and then there's like a noise of the rocks yeah. moving. And then she realizes that like, it's not just that she's panicking, but that the cave is actually kind of slightly collapsing. And that if she doesn't get out of there very quickly, she's just going to be crushed. Ah, oh, like my heart is in my mouth. Like I can't, I can't, I like, I can't deal with it. It's so stressful. Um, this one I did see at the cinema. Uh, I, and I think it really, 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 really benefits from that rather than seeing it at home. Like, it is still tense and brilliant. But I think watching it in a sort of enclosed dark space where nothing can distract you and there isn't light coming in from the outside, it really helps. It just makes it so much cooler. I'd, l- I'd love to see it at one of these special screenings at Wookie Hole or somewhere. <laughs> yeah, oh, man, that'd be great. I think I, I missed it. I didn't see it at the cinema, which I'm really sad about. I can't remember what the reason was. I think I wasn't near a showing of it. So yeah, I, did, I saw it on DVD and like every time I've watched it, I've tried to make it as kind of close to the cinema as possible. Because I've, I've watched it in the middle of the day and it's been like, oh yeah, that sounds good. And then, yeah, we have when you kind of close the curtains and do it at night and make sure that you can kind of, yeah, it's up loud. So, oh yeah, this sounds absolutely terrifying. It's brilliant. It's so good. Um, it's, I, yeah, I, I, um, I took a guy on a date to see it <laughs> in the cinema because I had calculated correctly that if it was really scary, I could pretend to be scared and like jump on him. Um, <laughs> And I remember it was really hot as well. Like it was like in the middle came out. Must have come out. It was a summer summer. movie, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, because I can remember like I had nightmares that night, and I just remember like waking up just really hot and just having nightmares about the monsters. The the monsters. I think I I remember when it came out. I can't remember if people liked them or not. I remember some kind of like because I think Lord of the Rings had come out, so everyone was like, oh, they're kind of gollumy. They are pretty creepy. The the crawlers or whatever they're called. They are blind. Yeah, they're they're blind, so kind of they track you by sound which means they can appear very suddenly behind you and not not actually know where that you are, which is a great kind of... Yeah, and they're just like... They're, I think one of the things I really liked about them, especially, like, kind of watching it again and again, is, like, they're not like the alien where, you know, you don't know how you kill them. Like, with the crawlers, there's, like, quite satisfyingly... You, you, you know that they there's a chance that the characters can get out if they can... They can if it's, like, a one-on-one thing, that you know that they can take them on. Uh, and they do do that really satisfyingly through the film. Like they have team up and I like, take on a couple, and it's always like a great like punch the air moment. He's like, yeah, fuck that one, yeah, and yeah, kind of obviously indulges Neil Marshall's gore love because some of them really get <laughs> get going. They really, they, yeah, they pop get, get in quite satisfying ways. But they they are yeah, I, like like they're quite yeah. I think like, that's right. Like they're quite killable. Like they're they're not they they can't see, and so if you can like get one over on them by being quiet I guess and you can just bash the head in like they're not they're not immortal they're not 
like yeah it's not like you don't have a chance but at the same time like you are constantly aware that even if the monsters weren't there they're probably fucked anyway because they're just stuck in a cave and they don't know where they're going and there might not be a way out so yeah i think there's a moment where the existence though they find like the the like pit of animal bones don't they and they're like well that means that there must be a way in and out of the caves because the creatures are clearly going out to hunt and then bringing animals down in here to eat them but like obviously they're getting in and out somehow so there must be a way which is a very odd moment of optimism i just i just really really like this film those those moments where you're holding your breath because yeah a crawl is really close to someone and you're just like just don't move just don't breathe don't scream yeah don't let them know that you're there like if you can it's like the like the t-rex thing <laughs> which is now i think they've decided is not true at all but that thing of like they can see movement so if you can just hold your nerve and not move then you'll be fine but it's terrifying so you want to scream you want to move absolutely there's a lot of, kind of covering each other's mouths and stuff like that and yeah and they're kind of, yeah they're like they are creepy and they're gross and they're just really they're like they're unpleasant and i think like the kind of the idea that they could be like crawling up a wall to get you or like swarming is really good yeah. um but yeah like i said like it's about 45 minutes i think before it gets to the uh first appearance and it's such a great jump scare i think it is it's yeah it's one of the greats where I think one of the characters just like says fuck it and starts screaming hello because they know that someone's there and filming it on their little digicam and not night vision spin around as one just right behind Alex Reed kind of yeah like ah um yeah it's fucking terrifying <laughs> it's so scary <laughs> it's really scary it's just scary how many times no matter how many times you watch it it's still scary uh, um that's what I was gonna say is that I remember at the time there being a lot of like you sort of wish that they didn't show the monster in the yeah. trailer because, yeah, it would have been such a great shock <laughs> if you didn't know, um, and that did spoil it a little bit, I think, because you're si- if you know that there's monsters coming and you're sitting there for forty five minutes, like where is this goddamn monster? <laughs> then, <laughs> then it's not quite the experience of just being terrified because these girls are stuck in a cave and then having the the threat ramped up so much. Yeah, definitely. I think like. It is quite, I guess, like similar to Dog Soldiers. There's kind of a similar kind of escalation of, um, like, like I was trying to think of the right word, like kind of scenarios that they have to get through. It's almost like levels where, you know, they've got to climb over this big gap, and one of them's got to like kind of hang from the ceiling, or like Sarah's got to stay quiet in the blood pool while someone else is coming, like kind of getting eaten next to her. There's kind of all these like horrible things that they have to kind of get through and work through. That feels like very like carefully structured and you don't i don't think you lose track of anyone in the film which i think because they split up quite kind of quickly but you kind of you you're rooting for all of them i think obviously with juno is the you know she's sympathetic but she does some bad things yes so the the sarah juno thing that's the other interesting thread in this film and, and the other kind of um i guess it like it again has that echo of dog soldiers in that there's someone in the group who you can't fully trust so we know that Juno has kind of screwed them all over by lying about the caves but we also um I I can't remember how early on it's made obvious to us I think it might even be in that first scene like before when the when she's pushed off the raft that that Juno and Sarah's husband uh are having an affair and like we know that and Sarah doesn't so there's like lots of very very like emotionally loaded scenes where um like Juno's apologizing for not being there to comfort Sarah after like this horrific things happened to her but she's just like we all lost something that day she's awful (laughs) hate it so much um The thing that um, that I thought was awful this time, though, is that this <laughs> the, th- the reason why Sarah finds out that her husband has been cheating on her is that he always used to say, um, "Oh God, what is it? Love, e- love each day, isn't it?" I've been making jokes making jokes about this for the last like week about it being like <laughs> live, laugh, love, and I couldn't actually remember what it actually was. <laughs> I think it's love each day, and and so he always says this. He'd always used to say that that was his motto, and then. Um, uh, when there's an accident and Juno accidentally kills Beth thinking that she's a, a crawler, um, she grabs her necklace and then gives it to Sarah later and finds that, um, yeah, it's engraved <laughs> with this incredibly, like, stupid saying. You're like, this guy, this is Lam- the guy that Lam- you're upset <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Him? 
<laughs> I feel like it could have been something better. It could have been something a bit more unique. <laughs> well, more unique, but it could have been something just fucking less. Oh, gross. Oh. Yeah. I do, yeah. I should note that all, all the performances, uh, apart from the... the oh, you don't see much of the bland husband, to be fair. But He's, he's only there for five minutes. Yeah, everyone is him. really good. I do really... They do such a good job of setting Beth up as played by Alex Reed as like she's like the best friend. She's the one who gets Sarah out of the the tunnel when she's stuck, and obviously she's basically the first one, or she's like the second one to get it because Juno stabs her by accident, mm. and then she lives long enough to tell Sarah exactly what happened, and then I think needs to be killed by Sarah for mercy reasons. It's awful. Yeah, but also it's 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 all the misunderstanding because I think. Like I think it was a genuine mistake on Juno's yes. part. Yeah, like, yeah, I don't absolutely. think Juno ever yeah. meant to stab yeah. her. Um, but the way that Beth kind of relays that to Sarah, and then when Sarah later asks her, like, "What happened to Beth? Like, where is she?" and she's like, "Oh, she didn't make it." Uh, like, I feel like it all gets like slightly blown into like you know you think she thinks that Juno might have done it on purpose, maybe, or like, or so, she might yeah. have like just abandoned her. Whereas, like, I'm like, no, like. She's the bad person. She's not that bad. Yeah. <laughs> Juno like fights to get everyone out. I think that's the I noticed a lot more this time. She does, and she yeah. won't leave. She's like waiting for Sarah. And yeah, she's great with Brianna Boring and Saskimolder as uh, Sam and Rebecca, the two sisters. And she's really heartbroken. Yeah, she's like you can tell she cares a lot about Holly, played by Nora Jane Noon, who's the sort of uh, out newcomer to the group, who's sort of swaggering and uh, daredevil, who runs off. She's the, the one I don't like. <laughs> Yeah, they tell her not to go running off, and then she breaks her leg. Yeah, well, as she should. Um, she, yeah, she's really annoying. <laughs> like, she's supposed to be like Juno's young protege, and I'm not sure if it's sort of implied that they're lovers or if that's even confirmed. But um, it's definitely implied. She's I just think, really yeah. annoying. It's just like kind of running around, being like, "Oh, these caves are boring," and then like. There's, yeah, there's lots of those moments where they go in the cave and she's like, oh no, this is actually cooler than I thought. And Juno's just like smiling. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know, <laughs> we're in a bad cave. Oh, yeah. But yeah, I, I do like, I think all the performances are really good and the characters feel um, like it's not a long kind of period before they, they get into the caves, but there is that kind of scene setting kind of bit in the in the cabin, which feels like genuinely quite nice. I think you kind of get a sense of who they all are. and yeah. They all get massively drunk the night before they're due to do something like really physically taxing. It seems a very bad idea to me. Maybe, yeah. maybe this is maybe this is old age. <laughs> like girls, <laughs> you're going to be going down a hall. Don't be hungover. <laughs> yeah, none of them seem that hungover the next morning, or they seem hungover, but then they have a shower and they're fine. They get over it quite quickly. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> no I couldn't figure out how old they were supposed to be because like, Holly seems like a student, but she is obviously the, the youngest one, and then. I don't know. I think I'm like late twenties or sort of mid to late twenties. Yeah, late twenties. Yeah, maybe they haven't quite hit that thirty hangover thing where suddenly everything takes days yeah, to get yeah. over. No, <laughs> not getting caving after that. <laughs> I've had two glasses of wine. I can't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I will be in bed for the day. Is this like com- compared to Dog Soldiers? Dog Soldiers feels like um, like a genre blend in the sense definitely just horror. And I know that he's covered. I think Neil Marshall's talked about how those the cover two impulses were to do something that was just horror because people were complaining that dog soldiers, dog soldiers wasn't scary, and to do something with women because there were no there's only one woman in Dog Soldiers. Yeah, it it feels like he kind of went pretty seamlessly from writing a bunch of blokes to writing a bunch of women. Like I could, I know, very yeah, I think so. could be wrong, but no, yeah, I think they're completely believable. I think it's really, really, really solid that writing. I mean. Yeah, apart from the fact that they're both so hung up on this clearly useless guy. Like, <laughs> other than that, <laughs> that was the only thing. Where I was like, Neil Marshall, this is what you think women want. <laughs> Fucking terrible necklace. <laughs> but that aside, yeah, I think it's really good. And I think the... I mean, again, I haven't checked, but I'm betting that the budget was much higher on this one. Dog Soldiers, the budget was £2.3 million and the descent was £3.5 million. Okay, so it's it's still not very much. But I think um, why this one looks so stunning is because he's really good at working with darkness and sort of like small points of light. So they're, they're in a cave and they just have like flares. He's good with flares, isn't he? Like Dog Soldiers and the yeah. have great flare shots. It just look amazing when there's just, you know, you all you can see is what's illuminated by this little green light in the corner or red light and everything. I mean, I, I, I'm a sucker for neon lights and I love 
yeah artificial light in the darkness so maybe that's why but i just think it looks stunning you definitely make because i know obviously all those kind of those uh, sets were built in the descent and you never you never get the feeling that it's on a sound stage do you like it looks you just like yep they're definitely underground somewhere wet and dark and cold yeah i could fully fully believe that i mean I, like his um like big standout episode of Game of Thrones is all in the dark, isn't it? It's all candlelight and darkness and the siege. So that's oh, yeah. it feels like that is that is very much like where he is like master of his domain. <laughs> like can we have some characters in the dark, in one place, not very much light, and like something nasty coming to yeah. get them and like he's the guy you want for that. <laughs> that is yeah. We all know they're in trouble. And they're prob- a lot of them will die. Just this like impending feeling of doom, like it's so good. It's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then the descent. Obviously, I think what you said about kind of him not really feeling like he fits in this black pack, like, uh, or like the kind of the vibe of the movies. I think the descent. It's only really the ending that feels like quite splatbacky. Like, but then I do. There's something quite lovely about when she just has that vision of her daughter. The ending of the film is you think Sarah uh, leaves Juno behind <laughs> in quite dramatic fashion, <laughs> yeah, um, and then gets out. And you think she's got away, she's kind of in daylight, and then she kind of comes to, and you realise that she hasn't got out. And it kind of, it flick, flicks to her seeing her daughter kind of arrive with a birthday cake, and she's kind of sitting facing her, and it's a really lovely image. And then it kind of cuts to a wide shot, where it's her staring at the torch, rather than the, the birthday cake for the candles. And God, it's, it's heartbreaking, yeah. and, but it's stunning. And I like... I know that there is another way that this film ends in another cut, but I haven't seen it and I refuse to because like it's that, that is set up. You see that sh- a shot of her daughter with a birthday cake as like yeah. a, a nightmare or something really early on. Like it's kind of throughout the film we're shown Sarah having nightmares and they look like reality, but obviously they're not. And then she comes too. So that is so kind of foreshadowed and set yeah. up that, that for that ending to, not do that just feels wrong yeah it's the idea that she, yeah she's like this is the point that she's always going to come back to is the, the image of her being reunited with her daughter and then the u.s ending i haven't actually watched the film with the u.s ending i don't even know if there's an option in the uk but i think it just ends with her with the jump scare in the car doesn't it yes i think probably and then that's obviously the springboard for the sequel but it's hard like it it ends so completely in the uk ending and i think one of the things that i really like about the film is that even like Sarah doesn't have a huge amount of dialogue, but you root. I, I, I don't know, like, even when she is, you know, leaving uh, Juno behind and stuff like that, I feel like she's such a kind of a character that you really root for. And you kind of, you, she's, I think there's a line about when it's when Beth's talking to her in the tunnel and she says, like, you've already gone through the worst thing imaginable, like, there's nothing else that nothing else can happen to you. Um, it's just a poxy cave. Um, obviously, it turns out to be full of monsters. <laughs> <laughs> but then there's still a question of, of is that is that worse? I mean, like, yes, physically, but um, <laughs> but <laughs> y- yeah, I think both Neil Marshall and is it uh, is it Shauna McDonald who's the actress? Mm. Yeah, um, she like they do such a great job of making you really understand her frame of mind and her emotional kind of reality. Like, it it's really gutting. Like, you can just I don't know, you just feel it. Like, even when. I don't know, Holly makes like an offhand comment near the beginning about how she wants to have lots of babies and you're like, oh, it's like, it just twists your stomach. It's so good. Like it makes you feel what she's feeling. And and so like, there's not a happy ending. As much as you're rooting for her, you know, to get out of the cave and not be killed by monsters, in the back of your head, you do know like there's not a happy ending for her. Oh, it's, it, is, it is wrenching. I think that's, yeah, it's so good. I guess people don't think of The Descent as being a sad film necessarily, but it really is. It's really upsetting. It's true. I think because it does have those really satisfying like action beats. Like I think it's when uh, like when Sam's sort of on the rope um, above the giant gap, and she's like basically killing herself to save save her sister, and she's like fighting. She's like kind of spinning around and fighting the crawler and stuff. There's all the, there are, there's the great jump scares as well. And these kind of like big iconic images of like uh, yeah Sarah in the blood pool screaming and stuff like that. But yeah, it doesn't work if there's not that really brutal kind of gutting, like you said, kind of um, emotional sadness to it. It's, it's just, I, I just think it's brilliant as a film. Like, <laughs> that feels like an odd thing to be giving praise for. Like, oh yeah, it makes you feel awful. <laughs> but um, but it, it, yeah, it's, I just think it's so affecting. Like, really you is, don't, yeah. sometimes I feel like films, horror films can go over the shop with trying to make you feel sad and for some reason this one just feels like it's it's pitched just right 
it's pretty much perfect, I think, that it's sandwich. Yeah, it's, I think so. I've seen it a few times since and kind of been prepared to find little problems with it. And once you get in the caves with it, it's just kind of, yeah, it just gets you. And it's really scary. It's very cleverly made, very well made, like well, well acted. Um, and it's, and it, you, can, you can tell it's the same person who made Dog Soldiers, but they feel like one's like a great time and one's yeah not one's was very upsetting but but yeah like it is like dog soldiers is his first film and now he's learned from that and move and and leveled up like that is how it that's how you sort of think it should work and that's how it feels like it does feel like that with um with kevin fever and hostel as well i think the same thing there's this sort of like youthful enthusiasm and then there's oh actually i know what i'm doing now (laughs) yeah 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 like oh i've challenged myself with this one a bit and yeah it's interesting that it kind of that's kind of almost it for horror for Neil Marshall for kind of up until his last movie, pretty much. Like, if, with the exception of some TV, but, like, it does feel like... Or, like, one of those ones where I'll just, like, I'll just put everything I know how to make, like, what would make a scary movie into this. But, like, not in a kind of... You know, as we see his next movie, kind of throw everything in and see what happens. It, like, The Descent feels like... It's hard to imagine, like, a director making another horror movie as, as good as The Descent. Yeah. It's a mic drop, isn't it? It's like, there you go. <laughs> Come for me. Like, yeah, I haven't made another film as good. Have you? Has anyone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and The Descent, I think, uh, he's talked about how it came out um, in the UK at the same time as the 7-7 bombing. So I think it kind of got lost in the shuffle of terrible news, basically, for a lot of British audiences, but then made lots of money in the US and really established him as like one of the best kind of British filmmakers out there. Remember the Splat Pack? The US gave it a separate ending, so made it more popular over there, maybe? I don't know. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know, like... I mean, I, we obviously never can, but, like, how it would have been received with its downbeat ending versus the sort of uplifting if you don't think about it for very long ending. I do I was reading, like, lots of movie websites at that time, and I do remember people in the US talking about, oh, the, the UK ending's much better. Okay, yeah. So I think, like, horror fans prefer the sad horror ending and they presumably would be the ones who are going to see it you'd have thought yeah I mean yeah because otherwise you've just you can't just set something up and then just chop it off and call it okay that's not how that works it's not how that works Mike Flanagan <laughs> um, but yeah um, yeah I just I just I, I think I was a bit worried to rewatch it because I thought Maybe I won't think it's as good as I it is in my memory, but yeah, no, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's definitely one of the best kind of modern horror movies, I think, genuinely is, and yeah, it holds up. And then, with all that success, Neil Marshall goes on to make his first big studio movie, which is bigger and definitely more expensive. It's got a massive cast. It's got, yeah, kind of no offence to Sean Pertwee, that was probably the biggest actor he worked with at that point, but um, yeah, it's got kind of famous people in it. Um, and yeah, it's post-apocalyptic action uh, outbreak movie, which is called Doomsday, which follow it begins with uh, something called the Reaper virus breaking out in Glasgow, uh, set in the near future. And obviously, watching it in a pandemic feels slightly different. Although, as you messaged me, like, why is no one wearing masks? <laughs> <laughs> It was like I'd sort of forgotten that there was like a, a virus uh, epidemic kind of element it's to this. It's the flimsiest excuse for, uh, yeah. And, and they're, but they're, they're like, stay in your homes and avoid close contact with other people. And I'm like, and wear a mask. And they're just like, stay in your homes. <laughs> Hold on, guys. <laughs> I've got a suggestion. <laughs> absolutely outrageous I do I, I do enjoy how you know you watch these old movies about what would happen if there was a disease that killed hundreds of thousands of people it was super contagious and, they're just, and we're just like yeah but we haven't all started eating each other in the streets have we no. <laughs> like well, one good thing for humanity I don't think we immediately turn to cannibalism in the wake of a pandemic yeah I'm watching that now it's all a bit outrageous maybe because we weren't in a pandemic before but yeah basically the, the, the plot of the film is that there's this horrible reaper virus breaks out in Glasgow so the British government decides to rebuild Hadrian's Wall, essentially, and lock Scotland in and the rest of England that's north of the Hadrian's Wall as well, which doesn't really get mentioned too much. And then and then it kind of, yeah, jumps forward, I think, 20 years or something, and the virus is back. It's in London, and London's a shithole anyway now because everyone's piled in and law and order has gone out the window. And 
the only thing that can save Great Britain at this point is if Rhoda Mitra, as Major Aidan Sinclair, leads a small task force across the wall with a bunch of a couple of soldiers, a couple of scientists to find the mysterious but brilliant scientist Dr. Kane, played by Malcolm McDowell, who was working on a cure but was stuck on the other side of the wall. And they keep talking about, oh yeah, like it's just a yeah, basically everyone's just started eating each other and turned into Mad Max um, in Scotland minutes after the wall was built. <laughs> like it yeah, just seems literally. Like they, day, day one, they, they're eating each other. My God. <laughs> literally, because so. like, that's part of that br- that um, briefing as well when they're like, what we can do is we can uh, c- close down London, we can like flood all the canals and then no one will be able to get out. And, they're like, and Bob Hoskins is like, but if you do that, like the people won't stand for it. There'll be riots, there'll be fires, they'll be eating each other on the... And they're like, um... No. <laughs> like, many people have shown very unpleasant sides of themselves during the pandemic, it is true. However, yeah, there has not been mass looting and eating of faces, so... That is true. Things could always be worse. Um, <laughs> Raving motorcycle gangs. Right, the yeah. problem with this film is that <laughs> Resident Evil exists as a franchise, and specifically Resident Evil 2 exists. And what's the point of this? Yeah, this film feels very much like someone trying to fit everything that they love into one movie without really thinking about whether it's a good idea or not. And I have to say that at the time, I fully loved it. I wouldn't see it three times. At not oh, wow. In the world. Yeah. Well, it's what it's, I think this is what we talked about in the, the first episode we did was, was, remember when you were a student and you just had loads of time and I had an unlimited yeah. card. And it, I think it came out sort of summerish, and it was a choice of... Or I could like read a book, or I could go and see Doomsday again, and just go go and see Doomsday because people hadn't seen it. And I, I like, saw oh. I saw Sin City three times, so I have no room to judge. Oh, I think I did the same thing. <laughs> and yeah, but yeah, it's it's so so like obviously a bad idea. The film, like I I still quite enjoy it mostly for the fact that it exists and shouldn't. It's like a I don't know, like a mutant. Like the three-eyed fish in the Simpsons or something like it's it. There's no, no sensible reason for its existence apart from Neil Marshall being bankable and someone saying like, "Oh, what do you want to make?" And he's like, "Oh, Mad Max in Scotland, but I also want like medieval. Like I want it to be a bit Terry Gilliam. There needs to be tanks and there needs to be a big car chase at the end." Oh, and and also I'm gonna need a Bentley. Um, so could we put a Bentley in the film? And it can go through the, the, the sort of apocalypse, but just to note, nobody should actually damage the Bentley because that's my Bentley. That's what I imagine Neil Marshall saying when he was pitching for this film because that felt that car like does not get fucked up at all. It's like the whole film. I'm like, oh yeah, there's Neil Marshall's Bentley as well. <laughs> I think I think I really I think they had three, and then immediately like one they they accidentally dropped one off a cliff or something, and it was fucked. So I think they had they had two that they had to take very carefully and definitely at the time I really appreciated the sheer like lunacy of it but I think it's I think it's a summer it was around the same time as Grindhouse came out I think it might have even been the same summer and it's that time of people give being given way too much leeway to make something that there's not there, there's an audience of four for or four or five, <laughs> yeah. and I'm one of them and I had an unlimited card so I don't actually know how much my sort of ticket like <laughs> spending could have helped and then watching it now I I see its flaws much more clearly. But yeah, sorry, I didn't, didn't ask you what your opinion was, was at the time. I just, all literally all I remember was that, that that car, like my entire memory of this film is just a spotless Bentley driving through an apocalyptic wasteland. That's all I remember. Um, and I think it's just, there's something really off-putting about this film to my brain where they all just start talking about this military operation and like, and my brain just switches off and then switches back off a minute switches back on a minute later and I'm like wait what what's happening like there's like punks and <laughs> what <laughs> there's so many characters I sort of feel like the characters that he's like made us have to follow are the baddies like, they're just not very interesting and they they're, they're kind of not good so I almost want to be on the side of the, the the like crazy mutants in Scotland but then they're not that well I don't know I just I'm really sorry. I just don't like this film. No, no, no. <laughs> and I can't retain it. Like, I'll just be watching it and I'll just be like, 
I don't know what just happened. Like there were 50 million characters. I don't know who that was. There are so many. Yeah. So I think the kind of in, in sequence, there's the kind of the beginning, which is the outbreak sequence, which is kind of soldiers, um, firing on civilians and blood splatting everywhere and pandemic, pandemic. And then there's a sort of introduction to Rona Mitra's character, Eden Sinclair, who's this badass who's, uh, got nothing to lose and is full of piss and vinegar or something. (laughs) Uh, so then it's kind of like escape from New York when they head over into the, like across the wall and there's like a, and then, but then they're almost immediately captured by this punk band, which flips into Mad Max band of punk cannibals led by Craig Conway's soul who turns out to be the son of Malcolm McDowell's mad scientist who in another switch is living in a medieval castle and there's a big there's a gladiator fight sequence between Rena Mitra and a big knight uh, and then there's the Mad Max it flicks back to Mad Max for the um, yeah car chase at the end there's there's a million di- and then it kind of it keeps cutting back to London where there's a very broad although probably judging by this year's sort of quite accurate kind of power corrupt power play. There's like this Prime Minister Hatcher, which is uh, Alexander Siddig. I'm like Alexander Siddig. Why is Bashir uh, so mean? <laughs> they'll be lining up to kiss my ass. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, terrible, horrible. Uh, is evil right hand man played by David O'Hara, who's just growling kind of throughout the film. And then and Bob Hoskins, who's stranded, just with some of the worst dialogue. I think the diet like when I was watching as a teenager, I somehow forgave the dialogue and then watching it this time I was like oh my god this is like eye-wateringly bad the dialogue especially yes. Bob Hoskins's stuff he's got such fucking awful like like was there a bet like did they uh, were they like what can you get Bob Hoskins to say <laughs> yeah, but it's it is like Garth Marenghi-ish it's like the like it's almost it's along the lines of like my ass is grass and he's got a lot of like, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. so bad like, and I know that it's but you know that that's intentional as well like you know that he can write dialogue better than that for real people but he's because he's going for this sort of hyper this kind of George Miller John Carpenter it's just like oh everyone's got to talk like the Lee Van Cleef and Escape from New York but it doesn't work at all like oh. the dialogue in this film everyone just sounds like they're doing a voice yeah, and, and like we've praised the performances in the other two films even though they're casts of like mostly unknowns and then and then this comes along it's like god everyone's terrible everyone is like I'd remembered Malcolm McDowell being more fun than he is because I think it was it was the brief period of the Malcolm McDowell renaissance which I was fully on board for I say renaissance it's time when Splatpack directors started putting him in films which I was obviously thrilled about because I love Malcolm McDowell but he's in it for about five minutes. Apart from like his his opening voiceover has got more enthusiasm than his actual like appearance. Yeah, and that's pretty bad. Um, yeah. I feel like if you sat this film alongside the Reckoning, I would be like, yes, I believe that's the same director, and he's bad because it's got a similar thing of like you've just cast your lead because she's hot, but like she can't fucking act and what is happening here and why is everything so weird and fake and stilted and why does everything look like you got it from the pound shop like, I just I hate it it looks horrible it's just bad apart from his Bentley his Bentley looks expensive but <laughs> like I do think Rona Mitch has been directed to not emote possibly um, but uh, then, yeah then it, then I'll blame him rather than her but like it's it's a bad performance yeah and for, like, like Bob Hoskins looks like he's like he's He's trying, but he does also look like he's like yeah crying on the inside. And Adrian Lester's in it. Um, Malcolm McDowell, David O'Hara, um, what's his in it? So there's, there's quite a lot of kind of Neil Marshall regulars like Craig Conway and Myanna Burring and uh, Darren Morfitt and yeah, Sean Pertwee gets uh, the fantastic like um, yeah he gets barbecued. There is like, but the thing is I. I do see all its flaws. I do still quite like it. Partly, I think, for pure nostalgia reasons. Like, I can't forget how much I enjoyed it at the time. But also, like, the, and I think I've got... It's that soft spot for, like, who asked for this? <laughs> yeah. Like, like, no one... No one's asking for that movie, especially at that point. I think now it might almost do better, because it seems like people have been doing cheap Mad Max rip-offs for the last ten years. Yeah, but now it would just seem oh, everyone's doing this, <laughs> rather than, yeah. like, this is just your mad passion project. Yeah, yeah. now, now it, would just, it would... I don't think people would bat an eyelid. It would just be, oh, he did a bit of a shit Mad Max thing. And it, it's obviously, like, all the stuff he likes, 
but a lot of it, it is it is pretty bad. I think my I've got a soft spot for it, but I can't say with my hand on my heart that it's good. Oh, I'm almost sad that we've that, that this is the one. Then this, I think this is the first time we found a film that we liked at the time, and then just we're like, no, it is really. I mean, I guess like Cabin Fever a bit, but then but it mostly held up. Whereas maybe this one hasn't. I think this is the sharpest drop off in my memory to um, actual quality. I was like, I started getting bored, and I think it is because there are too many characters and yeah, you just you're just like, why do I care about this? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. like Adrian Lester's in it. It's like the tough yeah, um, like this, her, her like the like her bodyguard essentially, or sort of the guy who's organising it, and. He lives through most of the movie, but like makes no impression at all. Uh, he barely has any dialogue. It's um, it's just weirdly boring. I can't. I I don't understand how a film that has so much going on can be so dull. But I think it, I don't know. Just it just it just there's something about it. I just find yeah, just really off putting. Yeah, it is, and yeah, I think it's where you can kind of see like this is def- you can tell that he loves like action maybe more than horror. Like there's it's not really a horror movie. We're kind of cheating a bit by having it in there. I think just because it's kind of gory and Jean-Marie but it's yeah this did I think um, yeah kind of set him back quite a bit in terms of his yeah public perception and I think it may it cost 17 million pounds and made 22.5 million dollars that's so much money I think so maybe there's something to be said for a budgetary restraint I mean I know that's kind of what Jason Blum's based his whole career on but like yeah maybe those maybe those constraints in the first two movies were actually yeah. helpful because it's like you've got to make something work within this location so all you can do is like make your small group of characters be interesting and make us care yeah. about them rather than just like well let's just get another 50,000 people in here yeah exactly yeah because you don't care about any of the people in this film no at all. no one um what a shame what a shame <laughs> Oh, also, just thinking about... I think we were talking about... Uh, I think it's the Yellow Roth one we were talking about. Getting annoyed when people make uh, obvious horror references. So there's like, oh, like, here, here's Miller, here's Carpenter, like, in one of the scenes. <laughs> oh, dear. No. <laughs> oh, dear. And then, yeah, then what What happened to him after Doomsday? Because I think that's the point where I stopped paying attention to him. Uh, yeah, in 2010, he makes... Uh, it's, it's a British set, kind of Roman... Kind of, it's a chase thriller. It's called yeah, Centurion with Michael Fassbender and Dominic West, and it's got a great cast. It's, I think it's that Ninth Legion thing where like a group of Roman soldiers get cut off behind enemy lines in Britain and have to get back. Um, Liam Cunningham's in it. Riz Ahmed, David Morrissey. It's like it's. I do. I haven't watched it for a while, so this may be <laughs> another one. But I remember it being. It's perfectly solid. Like it's just. It's not very memorable, but like it's a. It's kind of got Neil Marshall gore, but it's also like, oh yeah, you want to be making like a chase thriller. Um, but that was it, like film-wise, for about a decade, because he went to TV where he did, yeah, he got he won awards for his Game of Thrones episodes. Um, he directed Black Sails, Lost in Space, Constantine, um, did an episode of Hannibal. But I think what I remember from, yeah, the kind of the 2010s of Neil Marshall is basically him being rumored for stuff and like linked to movies that other people got or didn't happen. Um, like his one of the he was linked to Drive at one point the Nicholas oh, wow. movie um, uh, like Kong Skull Island I think it was rumoured for Predators the Robert Rodriguez reboot yeah mate, I think that, that that happens a lot doesn't it that like um, filmmakers make a film on a small budget and then they get scooped up and given like a mega budget blockbuster but maybe after Doomsday they were like mm, maybe not <laughs> yeah, like, I think because he's like he's a he's, he's someone that you could see like making sense to people who want to hire a director who knows what he's doing but won't mm. cost too much or like rock the boat so yeah and I think like movies like Last Voyage of the Demeter which I think is happening now with Andre Everdahl and I was li- I remember he was linked to a movie called Burst 3D for ages which is about a, a I always loved the sound of it never happened but it was supposed to be a Sam Raimi produced movie set in the mountains where uh, a group of uh, mountain climbers started spontaneously combusting. Amazing. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> that, that sounds like not like a real movie, but I would watch it. I don't know how it never got, um, probably because it would have been wildly expensive. But yeah, exploding mountain climbers in a film called Burst 3D. Like, it just sounds wonderful. But yeah, never got made. But yeah, I think he's he's talked about how uh, basically I think when the budgets start getting smaller like he just couldn't he, he was he has been trying to make films for the last 10 years but just didn't 
nothing kind of really happened for him and he seemed to find quite a good niche in TV. Mm. Um, and then he did the Hellboy reboot in 2019, which he's since come out and said was a miserable experience and he shouldn't have done it and basically did it because he thought, yeah, that he could kind of make it work with a script he didn't like and then kind of got pushed around by the producers, allegedly. Yeah, there's some very in- engaging, entertaining kind of reports of what happened on that set if you want to go looking for them. Uh, I don't oh know how dear. true they are, but yeah. And then The Reckoning, which I hated. I couldn't finish it. It was so bad. I was just like, I can't watch this. It's making my brain cells die. I think it was it was during Fright Fest, wasn't it? So it was like, it wasn't just like, I'm watching this movie and I can't be bothered to finish it. It was like, I've watched six other bad movies today and I've, I've hit my limit. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I did finish it and uh, I can't remember it now, to be fair. But yeah, I was, I was not a fan not yeah. <laughs> it's a shame that's yeah it does it feels like his two best movies are pretty cheap and contained and therefore you think oh well like if you can write for a small group of people and you, you can just write something really interesting and exciting that people like even though it doesn't have like a mega star in it like you'd think job done like you'd be having a you know you'd have a career forever <laughs> yeah. but uh doesn't seem to have quite worked out like that i don't know whether he's because like he's actively like avoided making tiny budget horror movies like because he you know was it was definitely like around like he would have been pretty perfectly placed to make kind of Blumhouse movie kind of a, like in that sort of boom like the first boom period yeah um, but yeah I don't know what like whether he was kind of looking for like bigger movies or like action movies but I think he, he has said that he wants to kind of keep making low budget horror movies now I guess because he's seen that oh I can actually just get one get one made and like he'll get a release but yeah, it's it is one of those funny ones where I think because I love those first two movies so much, and it's the more time passes, the more like it seems like that's such a yeah like important little pocket of kind of British like horror cinema mm. where there's mm-hmm. like same director made two really good films in the span of three years, and like a little boom for like the werewolf maybe as well. I think we'll probably come back to that at some point. Like it feels yeah. like Dog Soldier's part of that. But yeah, like the more time passes, it does feel like that's kind of a. Like I hope, he, I really hope he comes back and makes like a really good movie. I, that would be I'm great. I'm sure he can. Like it's just sort of yeah, just whether he wants to, just do something in the dark, Neil Marshall. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Here's some flares. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. What are we doing next time then? Uh, we are either doing Alex Arja or uh, James One. I think we haven't decided yet. It depends yeah. how brave we're feeling. Whether we want to dive into yeah. some really uh, tough. Yeah, it depends whether we want to have fun or not. <laughs> yeah, the See thing is, like, or so goes, this it? one was largely like a an easy an e- easy one in inverted commas, like in that two out of the three movies were great. So I feel like I'm due a bad one, but I really don't want to. <laughs> it's tricky because I think I struggled through Rob Zombie a lot. Yeah, that's true, and that's, then. Yeah. I was prepared for Eli Roth to be an ordeal and it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Some of it was actually pretty fun. But then Neil Marshall did feel like a break, but it feels like the splat pack is, has oddly been quite rough. <laughs> I, think, like, <laughs> I think maybe because it's like we can't, we, we've settled in, like we're doing a splat pack now. Yeah. Uh, maybe give us some suggestions on what we should do next. Yeah, um, nice. Since we're just <laughs> grinding ourselves into a splat pack <laughs> hole, help! Um, <laughs> in the meantime, yeah, we're on Twitter at ChillennialHPod or at Sarah Dobbs and at Jonathan Hatful, I believe. So that's nice and easy to find. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, listening to us once again. Thanks very and much for we'll listening. We'll be back soonish. Okay, bye. Bye.